The following audio is from City Rev Church. For more information about City Rev Church, visit us online at cityrev.org. A friend of mine is such a diehard Miami Dolphins fan that he has to watch Dolphins game. Like over his lifetime, he's realized like he, he has to be strategic about how he watches a Dolphin game because he just, he emotionally can't handle um, like the ups and downs of the game. It's too like stressful, anxiety producing. And when he started describing what it's like for him to watch a Dolphin game, I started to lean in. I'm like, that sounds very familiar, go on. And he said, look, I just, I can't handle the emotional roller coaster." He says, so what I do is I make sure I have the game recorded and then I wait to find out if the Dolphins win then I know it's safe emotionally and I can go back and I watch the whole game. And I'm like, I might need to start doing that, like for my own mental health and, you know, just my relational health of the family that has to, and friends that have to watch me suffer through a Dolphins game. Um, and so I was like, okay, so, so um, you don't just find out who wins, you actually go back. He's like, oh yeah, I watch the, if we win, I'll watch the whole game because I'm, I can rest that I know the end of the story. I just want to now find out how. And I thought that was so interesting. And it reminded me in a lot of ways on how the Bible operates when it comes to how everything ends. It's very, very clear, crystal clear on who wins. 100% clear. In the end, Jesus wins. Jesus wins in the end. Those who are with Jesus, those who are uh, walking with Jesus have put their faith in Jesus. In the end, we also win with Jesus. But then comes the big question, okay, how does that victory play out? We know the end of the story, but how does it actually play out? And the Bible speaks to that as well. And a lot of times, the how is where most of our questions uh, come from. Maybe you've heard it said, like, uh, doesn't the Bible talk about, like, this antichrist rising at the end, and is there like some beast and a mark of the beast. And then there's, is there like a tribulation? And what about this rapture? And like, how, how does it all play out? I mean, all Christians know the Bible is super clear. Jesus wins, but what about the how? So what I want to do today, we want to do something a little bit different. I want to walk through the how. And honestly, there are several different views historically. There's three major views of the how. And so I want to walk through those together. I want, we're going to look at one particular scripture, one text, that might be the most debated scripture in all of scripture. It, it is historically one of those that people who love God and love the Bible are like, wow, that's a tough one. I want to take a look at it because I want you to know about it. And I want you to see the the ways that that has been interpreted historically because how you interpret this text is actually the framework for how then most people operate and how does it play out? Like, what should we, like, I read this in the news. Should that freak me out? Should Should I be expecting this? Should I be expecting that? Let's take a look at the Bible. I want you to understand the various ways that it's interpreted so that you have a little bit of a better grasp at the how. Okay, but here's what I need you to do with me. I need you to nerd out with me a little bit today, okay? 
We're gonna, it's going to feel a little bit different than how we typically do it because we're going to dig into some of these theological points. But before we, but before we can understand like what should we expect, we've got to walk through these and wade through uh, some of this information. Okay, so what I want you to do is open in your Bible to the book of Revelation. And I want you to go to chapter 20. Book of Revelation, we're going to look at chapter 20. And we're going to pick it up in verse 1. Now notice this is like right at the end of your Bible. It is, there's like one page left. There's chapter 21 and 22. This is right towards the end. Uh, Here's what it says. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, the ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. All right, some pretty interesting things in there. What does this all mean? What did this say? It says that an angel at some point, an angel comes, takes Satan, bounds him for a thousand years. Satan is thrown in the pit and he is kept from deceiving the nations. And that's a 1,000 year period. Okay, before we go any further and trying to understand this, we have to think through how do we interpret a part of the Bible like this. Okay, let's, we're going to have to get nerdy here. The, the term used for interpreting really any type of literature, but we use it in biblical context, the term is hermeneutics. I want us all to say hermeneutics together so we feel super smart. Ready? One, two, three. Hermeneutics. Okay, you feel super smart now. I feel smart. And um, here's what this means. Hermeneutics is the way of interpreting literature or any kind of written document. Hermeneutics is is the principles of interpretation. It's not just for the Bible. Um, That's what lawyers are taught. They're taught how to correctly interpret law. It's various uh, ways of interpreting. You actually use hermeneutics every day. You just don't think that you're, you don't think about it as you're using it. You're interpreting things all the time. Let me create a scenario for you. Let's say you are training to be a veterinarian and you work at a, at a vet. There is like a seasoned older veterinarian that is training you. And the day comes where you are going to perform your first actual surgery on someone's actual pet. And you're a little nervous, little Johnny is sitting out in the waiting room and you are going to operate on his parakeet. It's very ill. And for some reason, his parents want to spend the money to have it operated on. Okay. So you're going to do it. And you're in the operating room. Your hands are shaking a little bit because you know, I mean, you're trying to spare the parakeet. Okay. And as you start doing the surgery, you know, it's very delicate surgery. You say to the veteran veterinarian who's standing over your, over your shoulder, you say, am I doing good? And he says, you're killing it. (laughs) 
Now you have to use some hermeneutics. You might be doing an amazing job in saving the parakeet, or you might be responsible for snuffing out its life. You may be figuratively killing it, or you may be literally killing it. You follow me? That is hermeneutics. You have, to, you have to interpret what that's saying. It's not always obvious and how hermeneutics play out. Okay, so in the Bible, you have to use hermeneutics. Part of the reason you have to use hermeneutics is because there are all different types of genres in the Bible. You've got legal documents in the Bible. You've got letters. You've got, uh, you've got history. You've got poetry and song lyrics. And you've got this type of literature, which is prophetic literature. In the same way, you are going to interpret a text message different from an email, different from the newspaper, different from a, a history book, different from a fiction book, different from song lyrics and poems. You're going to interpret all of those different. You, you have kind of instinctual hermeneutics you use in the same way we have to approach approach the different genres in scripture differently. On top of that, you have to use hermeneutics when you're separated by time. If you were to go to a dinner party about three, 400 years ago, um, and you were in an English-speaking land, and after dinner, one man turns to the hostess and says, Madam, your cooking is awful. You would be offended for her, but Three, three, four hundred years ago, awful meant full of awe. He might actually be meaning, I am full of awe over your cooking. So you also have to use hermeneutics, not only in different genres, but also when there's a distance of time. Okay, so this is, we're reading the Bible, and we're learning how to read the Bible. This is why it's sometimes challenging. Some parts are really easy, much easier to understand, but some parts take some work. This is the process of hermeneutics. On top of that, in passages like Revelation and some of the prophets in the Old Testament and a couple little segments and when, when Jesus taught, there is a whole genre in and of itself that is a little bit foreign to us. It's prophecy. You don't, you know, we, we don't really interpret prophecy and so we have to actually learn. This is why Revelation is, man, one of the most challenging books to understand. And so we often don't know how to interpret so we don't like, what do we use to figure out what is Revelation saying? And there's different ways, different things people use to interpret Revelation. We'll talk about more of that in a minute. But here's the rule of thumb for, for, for all scripture, but especially prophecy. Interpret scripture by scripture. So you have to know other parts of scripture because it's repeating and recycling or foretelling certain themes that it's bringing all together. Okay, that's hermeneutics. Now, what we have here in our text is we've got some really interesting things and we've got cues that this is prophecy. He says, then I saw, he's seeing a vision and he's using symbols to talk about Satan. He's calling him a dragon and a serpent. Okay, we know that this is a prophetic genre and of course it's right here in the whole book of Revelation. So we know contextually this is prophecy, but what is it saying about this thousand years when the enemy will be bound so he cannot deceive the nations? What does this mean? Let's keep reading. We're going to pick it up now in verse 4. Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast 
or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. We have a thousand year period. Satan is bound, so he can't deceive the nations. And then we find out something else. Jesus is reigning during those thousand years. Jesus is reigning, and those who have died, it talks about martyrdom, um, it says at least uh, literally um, beheaded, but it might just be speaking more figuratively as martyrdom. Uh, those who have already died are reigning with him as priests. They're reigning and they're priests. Okay, I want to just go ahead and finish out this chapter, um, and then we're going to talk about what does this mean. All right, let's keep going. Let's pick it up in verse 7. <clears throat> And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city, but fire came down from heaven and consumed them and the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Okay, man, so much in there. Um, let's get the basics. After that thousand years, it seems like to some degree, Satan is released to redeceive the nations. There is some type of large battle, but God intervenes and Jesus is victorious. And then comes the judgment. There's a throne. Jesus is seated on the throne. All are judged by one type of book or the other. One type of book is the book of the deeds of our lives. And if any one of us are judged by the deeds in our lives, we'll find that we have sinned against an eternal God. All of us have sin in our lives. Selfishness, pride, hatred, moments where we lack integrity. I mean, we all have that. So if we're judged by the deeds of our lives in those books, then we have sinned against an eternal God and the just punishment is an eternal punishment. But there's another book. It's the book of life. And every name that's written in the book of life will not be punished for eternity, but will enter into God's presence for eternity in heaven. 
You say, how do you get your name written in the book of life? That might be the most important question a human could ask because eternity is at stake. Not only does it free you in this life, but it saves you for eternal life. See, um, one sin against the eternal God deserves an eternal punishment, so how could we be saved of that? We needed God to save us. So Jesus, what is God, became a man. He lived the perfect life we couldn't live. And when he died on the cross, he was taking all of that punishment that each one of us deserves for our sins. He took and exhausted the punishment we deserved. His blood ransomed our life. It paid the debt for our sins, past, present, and future. And then that is offered to every human in the world as a free gift. And anyone who puts their faith in Jesus, they're saying, I'm not hoping I'm good enough. I'm not counting on my deeds. I know that I'm, I'm a, a sinner. I need to be saved. I'm putting my faith in Jesus, in the deed Jesus did in his death and resurrection to save me. My faith is in Jesus. And anyone who says, I believe Jesus died and rose again to save me from my sins. I put my faith in Jesus. Jesus is my Lord, my King. I'm putting my faith in what he did. That step of faith writes your name in the Lamb's Book of Life, never to, be, never to be erased. You're gonna be given an opportunity. If you're here, or maybe you're in Cooper City, you're watching online, if you are not 100% sure your name is in the Book of Life, don't leave here until you're sure, and you'll be given an opportunity to do that today. Okay. After the 1,000 years, then comes judgment. Okay, how do we understand this? I wanna walk through three different views. This is a little bit different than what we would typically do. Why are we showing three different views? Because these three different views are historical. These have gone back almost like from the very beginning, Christians have puzzled over this. And there's been three different views. All of these views are held by Christians that love the Bible as God's word. It's not like, hey, these are like Christians that have gone off track, but these are what the good Christians believe. That's not it. Like all of these are godly, Bible-believing Christian views. In other words, you could have any one of these views. It's okay, but I wanna walk through that. And it's important because how you view will play out very, how, what you think is gonna happen in the end. Let me walk you through it. Okay, I've got, I've got some props here that are, that are going to help me. Okay, <clears throat> the first thing that we have is that we have what we know here is the church age. I have this in blue because um, this is what we're in right now. We're in the church age. Now, maybe we're like here and it's almost the end of the church age. Maybe we're here. There's some that even think we're just, we're still in the beginning of it. It's a long way till the end, but this is where we're at. We, everyone believes in that. Next, we know that there is eternity. Like one day there will be a new heavens and a new earth and we will live for eternity. Okay, these two things, everyone believes. Okay, but we just read about something else. Some millennium, like there's some period of time, a thousand years, where Jesus is reigning and Satan is bound so he can't deceive the nations. So what do we do with this millennium? 
What do we do with what it teaches in Revelation 20? How you handle the millennium is how you believe the end will happen. So not, by the way, in all three of these views, um, some take the millennium as a literal thousand years, some it just means a long period of time. So in all these views, there's different takes on that. Okay, let me, uh, let me walk through the first view, and I'm gonna pick this one. The first one is the most complicated view, but it's also the most popular, so I need to take the most time on this one. The, the, way you, um, the way these different views work is dependent on where you place the return of Jesus. That's this silver box right here. So some put the return of Jesus before the millennium. Some put it after the millennium. I want to start with the first view is called pre-millennialism. That's a fun word, right? Pre-millennialism. Why? Because they place the return of Christ before the millennium. Um, they would also then, they tend, this view tends to read Revelation somewhat more literally than the, than the other views. So you have, so this is, this is how it will play out. You also would have a, um, a robust tribulation that's happening. So here's how this goes. Or what we're going along in the church age and then eventually there is a very robust tribulation. Usually it's a period of about seven years. At some point during that tribulation, Jesus returns. I say some point because even within premillennialism, there are differing types of premillennialism depending on where you put the return of Jesus in here. But for our purposes today, we're going to keep this simple. If you're like a diehard premillennialist, don't send me an email, okay? I'm just trying to keep it simple. All right. Okay, at some point during this tribulation, Jesus returns bodily, physically. That begins a millennium. Some believe a literal thousand years, some believe a figurative thousand years, where Jesus is on earth. Those Christians who have already died are with Jesus on this earth bodily. They've been given a new body and they reign with Jesus. It's a time of peace and shalom where Jesus is actually reigning on the earth. At the end of that millennium, as I talked about the end of, of Revelation 20, there is a judgment. I have Jay here for judgment. There is a judgment where those who are in Christ, their names are in the book of life, they, they continue to heaven. Those who are not face eternal punishment. But how basic, uh, basic overview of premillennial, you have the church age, a robust tribulation, the at the, which point the return of Christ, Jesus wins, he's reigning on this earth bodily with Christians, and then you have a judgment and then into eternity. Okay, um, if who would be someone who believes this view? If you've ever read the Left Behind series, or you've seen the movies, or you you know you know of the the author Tim LaHaye, this is the framework they're operating out of. So if someone is waiting for like and wondering like who is the actual Antichrist. You know, what is the, I'm looking for an actual person and maybe they're looking like, well, is this leader politically the Antichrist or is this one? And what is the actual literal mark of the beast? Because I don't want to accidentally get it or I don't want to intentionally get it. Like if they're looking for those actual specifics, most likely they're operating out of a premillennial view. You follow me so far? Okay. Some of you, you're like, this is way nerdier than I thought. I thought it was less nerdier this exceed that. Okay, but you're stuck now. Okay, so we're just going to keep going. Okay, the there are some strengths and dangers of each view. 
the strength of a pre-millennial view is those who believe this. Many are really, really diehard about this. They believe this strongly. And the strength is they study, these, uh, they study this part of Scripture. They're very watchful, and, they're, and they dig into that part of Scripture. They're, they're very faithful with it. Also, just from an interpretation standpoint, they're taking a lot of, the, of Revelation just at face value, and they lean more on the literal interpretation of what it says in, in, um, in Revelation. Um, the danger of this view is, and not, it's not everybody, but the danger of this view is sometimes because people are wondering when the tribulation and if it's on us, sometimes the danger is people interpret the Bible using the newspaper. And they're looking at current events and they're taking that and that's how they interpret the Bible. Remember how you interpret the Bible is with the Bible. The danger is a lot of books get sold by people who can connect current events to the Bible, but we don't interpret Scripture with the newspaper. We interpret Scripture with Scripture. The second danger, again, that's not all premillennialists. The second danger is because everything is going towards a tribulation, there can be historically, not always, but there can be historically a real pessimism that everything's just going to get bad, where we're, the, the, the ship is sinking. And so let's just save as many souls as we can, but beyond that, like the ship is sinking. And there, this has been the cause historically of Christians pulling out from trying to lift up society in a holistic way and just trying to save souls because it's all going down. So the, one of the dangers is there can be a real pessimism uh, because of premillennialists. Not all, not all premillennialists are like that, but that is a danger. Okay. That's the first one. This is probably the most popular, partially the most popular because of like the Left Behind series and the books and all that. Um, and so many people just assume, well, of course, this is the only thing that the Bible teaches, but there are other views historically. Okay, here's the second one. Some would say not premillennial. They do not believe that, the, that Christ is coming before the millennium. They believe that Christ, and they read the scripture, is coming after the millennium. So this is called Postmillennialism, because it's after the millennium. And this is a very interesting view. The way that it's interpreted is that we are in the church age now, and a lot of the tribulation that you hear in, the, in Revelation in particular, you hear about an antichrist and a beast and all of these things, they would, many of them would say that happened that first generation and that that was written to prepare that first generation for a very robust tribulation that they would walk through. And so they would often interpret some of those things as historic characters. Some would then say, and whenever the gospel goes into a new land, there's opposition. But they'll be quick to add this. But the church, the power of the gospel and the growth of God's kingdom, the kingdom of God, always triumphs. And there's an overarching trajectory of God's people and the gospel that over time, it's going to spread out more and more and more and more throughout the world. And because of the power of the gospel, society will get better and better and better and better. And eventually it will reach a place where the kingdom of God reigns over all of the world. And there's a shalom that will happen for a figurative millennium. 
And so the gospel has grown. There will enter into an era where the reign of Christ is felt all over the planet for a season of a millennium. And then Jesus will return. There will be judgment. And then we will spend eternity in heaven. This is a view that was, so who would believe this? Um, This was a view very prominent in the 1800s. So famous theologians like someone named, maybe you've heard of Jonathan Edwards, other heavy hitters, this was the predominant view. The benefit of this view, there's some strengths, there's also some dangers of this view. The, the, uh, The strength of the view is the optimism that the gospel can have. It's a very optimistic view of the power of the kingdom of God spreading. They would take a a, a scripture where Jesus says, may your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. And they would see that as their marching orders to live that out. Because of that in the 1800s, you have people like many abolitionists that saw it as their role to see the gospel take root in their society and remove some of the ghastly evils that were in their society. They also had a very robust missions movement because they're trying to reach every single nation around the world. And and it was an incredible era of of missions to reach every single uh, single nation. And there were some people that gave the ultimate sacrifice. I mean, tremendous sacrifice to take the gospel to every every nation. That's the strength of of this view. The The danger of this view is it doesn't, often fit really well with what we see in society. And point of fact, after World War I, this view basically crashed. When people had this very optimistic view and then they saw a worldwide war, remember it was the war to end all wars? And they're like, I gotta rethink my theology because how does this fit? And then there was another one so there's, this is the minority view because of those types of things. There's very, it's hard to find a, a modern theologian that holds this view, but this was something that has historically been around um, and it's one way of interpreting it. And there's a lot of good biblical reasons for that. Okay, here's the third view. The third view would be what's called millennial. So we've got pre-millennial, before the millennium. We've got post-millennial, after the millennium, the third view is a-millennial. So the prefix a means like not, like atypical means not typical. A-millennium means not a future millennium. This view would say what is described in Revelation 20 of a millennium where Jesus is reigning and Satan is bound is happening right now. That's what we're in. That is another way of describing the church age. So you say, well, how does that work? Then why is the millennium discussed at the end of the New Testament? Like, how does that work sequentially? And the amillennial's perspective would say, well, sometimes that's how the Bible operates. It, it is describing the same event from another angle. For example, Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. Genesis 1 says God made man and woman. Genesis 2 goes back through that one part and says Adam was alone, none of the animals were good helpers, he puts Adam to sleep, he takes the rib out, he makes, the, he makes Eve from the rib, and then they became one flesh. He, this is describing, it's describing the same thing in Genesis 2 that it just described in Genesis 1, and they would say the church age is the millennium. 
Well, how then is um, Satan bound? Well, they would interpret that from Revelation chapter 20 as Satan is bound in the aspect of he's no longer deceiving the nations in that now people from all nations are joining in the people of God. It's not just one nation. The other nations are not in, in darkness. People from all tongues and tribes and nations are part of God's people. They would then say this perspective that there are times of tribulation. There are types of antichrists that come. There's not one literal, this is the most figurative perspective. There's not one literal antichrist. There are antichrists that go out. Some say, hey, there may be like a crescendo of tribulation at the end, maybe not. But what you see is times of tribulation and times of victory and growth that ebb and flow throughout history. The strength of this perspective is it's pretty honest about tribulation. It's honest that, hey, there's some things that are really bad and there's some things that are getting worse, but there are some things that are getting better. So it's honest, but it also can still be hopeful at what the gospel can do if it goes out. The weakness, the danger for this is, whereas the danger for um, premillennial is they interpret Revelation with the newspaper, the danger with postmillennial is that they interpret scripture with a history book, the danger of amillennial is that they just don't interpret it. And so sometimes an amillennialist can be like, yeah, it's all just um, the, the, the various symbols, you know, it's all meaning just the same thing. And so sometimes an amillennialist is not as diligent and vigorous as some of the other perspectives. Okay, so here comes the million dollar question, all right. But what does City Rev believe? <laughs> Which of these does City Rev believe? Okay, the official position of City Rev is that City Rev does not have an official position. <laughs> but that's important, here's why that's important. There is a historic, a historic creed that the church has, has always talked about throughout history. It's this, on the essentials, unity. On the non-essentials, diversity. And in all things, charity. There are some things that are absolutely essential. There's only one way to heaven. There is a word of God. It is living and active. It's, it's true. It's inerrant. It's infallible. I mean, there are some things that are absolutely essential about who Jesus was. He died. He rose again. There's some things that are essential. We will spend eternity in heaven. He will judge. He will return again. Like there are some things that are absolutely essential. There are some things that are important, but non-essentials. The Bible's clear about that. It teaches there are some things that are of first importance. That's the gospel. So in the non-essentials, we can have diversity. I have kind of a way that I lean, but there are other people, on, even on staff, that kind of lean a different way, and that doesn't, we don't have fights about it. We talk about it and challenge each other about it and think about it and dream about it. We, we don't have something that we're, if it's a secondary issue, or that's not something to divide over. If it's a secondary issue, it's not something to get dogmatic about. It's not something to say, I can't be, I can't even talk to that Christian. I can't be in their, their community, small group. I can't even go to that church. It's a, if it's a secondary issue, we have charity with one another. We have humility. I mean, think about this. If this is, I mean, this amillennial was, thought, uh, thought, was taught by Augustine and Luther, and then Jonathan Edwards had another one, and then a bunch of people have a different one. I mean, like, if these guys 
who all love Jesus and all believe on the essentials, lets us also have humility and say, man, with some of the most difficult things, let's, let's handle it with sensitivity. Let's care. Let's dig into anything God's put into scripture, but let's handle it with sensitivity. So with that said, what are the essentials from this that we all need to know? Here's the essentials. Spoiler alert. Jesus is going to return. Last week we said, um, said Jesus is going to return. This week we're reminding us Jesus is going to return. What we also know is whether it's in the eternity or in, in some age now, maybe maybe a millennium, maybe definitely in eternity, what we know is that Jesus not only returns, but Jesus reigns. He reigns. He rules. He um, it says in Hebrews chapter one, after he put away sin, he sat down at the right hand of the Father. First Peter says that Jesus reigns and everything was put down under his feet. Jesus reigns right now. How that plays out with the millennium or the, uh, we don't, you know, we could debate that, but we know is he reigns right now and he will always reign. If Jesus reigns right now, then in reference to end times, let me encourage you with a couple things. Whatever your end times position is or beliefs or assumptions, if we know Jesus reigns and is returning, then whatever your view of the end times is, don't have a view of it that includes anxiety and fear. Because he reigns. Jesus is not in heaven like, oh, one day I'll reign, but I'm, I don't yet. No, Jesus reigns. So in the end, he wins, and he's with us all the way through. So whatever your end times view is, the revelation is given to encourage us, not terrify us. Be encouraged, be at peace. Here's the second one. If he reigns, then we should have an optimistic view of what the gospel can do as it goes out. What Jesus said, he said, this is what the kingdom of heaven is like. The kingdom of heaven is like a seed. And he said, the kingdom of heaven is now here. He said, the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed planted in a garden. It's the smallest seed, but then it grows to become the largest tree. It's like, he says it again, he says it's like leaven, a little bit of leaven leavens the whole lump. It's like leavens a whole lump of bread. He says, whatever our view is, let's have a robust expectation of what the gospel can do in our lives, in our families, in our city, in our nation, in our world, because Jesus reigns. If you're here today and you're saying, hey, I had some assumptions about what happens and, and I thought this was the only thing, man, broaden your view that the Christians have had different views throughout history, but here's the one thing you can know. Jesus is going to return, Jesus reigns, and we can, then we can be at rest and that we can be uh, optimistic about what is he doing. If without optimism, how could we live out the vision that he's given us, City Rep? What we're believing is that in our generation, we're responsible for a city. And we're believing the power of what happens. We're not, we don't believe in a sinking ship called South Florida. We believe the power of what God can do when Jesus is revealed in a city. 
And as we each go into our lives revealing Jesus, as we do that, we believe this, the gospel can revolutionize our city. We have a robust view. But here's the other thing. If Jesus is returning and we will one day stand before him, every person one day stands before him, then what's absolutely essential is that you do not leave here today without knowing for sure that your name is written in the book of life. It's a free gift. Jesus did all that needed to be done for you to be saved. You just have to surrender to that and receive it as a gift. He paid for your sin. He rose again. And he, he is the king. He's offering that act of salvation and offering him to be your king. Make him your king and your savior today. I want to lead us in a prayer. Would you bow your head and close your eyes? Maybe you're here today and you, or you're watching in, in online. You can be here at the West Pines campus at Cooper City online and you say, look, I, I, need to, I need to make it right. I need to know for sure. I'm ready to take that step. I want to put my faith in Jesus. Can I encourage you? Don't leave without knowing because here's what we know. Jesus could return at any moment. Any moment. Maybe today is your moment to just receive the free gift of salvation and have confidence in your faith in Jesus. First John says, he who has the son has life. He who does not have the son of God does not have life. And he said, I write this to you so that you may know that you have eternal life. You can know for sure. Just receive the son today. If that's you, with everybody having their heads bowed and their eyes closed, if you want to put your faith in Jesus today, no one's looking around, just between you and God, make this the day. I want you to just, if you say, yeah, today I'm going to do it, I'm going to put my faith in Jesus, just slip your hand in the air and put it back down. Praise God. Amen. Anybody else, you say, today is the day. I want to know my name is written in the book of life. I'm putting my faith in Jesus today. Just put your hand in the air and put it back down. Amen. Praise God. Let me lead you in this prayer. Just silently, just surrender your life to Jesus. Let me lead you in this prayer. Say, Jesus, thank you for saving me. I believe you paid for my sin through your death on the cross. I believe you rose again from the dead. And that is what saves me. I make you my king. And I know that I'll live with you forever. In Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more resources and to check out other teaching series, please visit our website at cityrev.org. If you would like to speak to somebody about beginning a relationship with Jesus or ask any questions you have about this teaching, you can email us at podcast at cityrev.org.